Thank you, Ben. Good morning. My name is Chris, if I, if I haven't met you yet. Um, to begin, I want to ask you guys a question. Have you ever been left out of something? Not like left out of something you didn't really care about, right? That's fine. Have you ever been left out of something that you deeply long to be a part of? Maybe you were a kid and, and you remember the birthday party that everyone was invited to, except for you. Or you're a parent and you've seen that pain on your little kid's face when they try out for the team and they, they don't make it. We face this as adults too, don't we? Right? There are times where we think we're really close friends with someone and we never get that wedding invite. These moments in our lives can be incredibly painful if we're honest enough to admit it. In our text today, we're going to read about a, a man who was left out by no fault of his own. And if we were to stop there, then that would be pretty sad. But we're going to read also about how he became fully included in the family of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So in the story Luke records for us in Acts 10, we've got two main characters with two different ethnic backgrounds, two different dreams, two different entourages. But we'll also see that there is one mission and message of Jesus. And it is for absolutely anyone who will place their, their hope in him. So this story is set within the midst of the book of Acts. And if you're not familiar with it, Acts is a New Testament historical book which recounts the story of the early church. So it's looking at what the disciples of Jesus did after Jesus rose and ascended into heaven. And we could talk a lot about Acts, but the one thing that I think we need to understand before we look at the story is that throughout the story, or throughout the book, Luke is tracing the growth and increase of the early church throughout the world. So at the very beginning of the book, he quotes Jesus' words in Acts 1.8. He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, which are surrounding regions, and to the ends of the earth. And then throughout the book, Luke shows us all these checkpoints of how that mission is going. So Acts 6-7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So we're in Jerusalem, and what's happening? It's increasing, the church. In Acts 9-31, we get another one. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So now we're in Judea and Samaria, and what's happening? The church is multiplying. And by Acts 12.24, the gospel has reached the Gentiles. This is after the story of Cornelius and Peter. It's going to the ends of the earth, and Luke tells us, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Luke keeps doing this throughout the book, but we'll stop there. So, so just before the church begins her expansion to the ends of the earth, Luke tells us the story. And as Ben graciously mentioned, it's a long story. 
right? So Luke went to great lengths to tell us this long, detailed story. That means it's important. So he wants to show us how this all got started. So who is Cornelius? Cornelius is a Roman centurion. This is a man who was a Roman military officer. That's what the title centurion meant. He would have led a military unit of about 100 soldiers. This guy was a leader of men. He was a man, right? But notice, he's not described in this text by how many battles he's won or how many subordinates he's made a fool of or anything like that. If he lived today, this would be his LinkedIn bio, according to Luke. Cornelius, centurion of the Italian cohort, devout God-fearer, confident leader of my household, interested in caring for the poor and continually meeting with God in prayer. Is that what you would have expected? Roman centurion, Italian cohort. Have you ever met someone like that? Someone who just defies every little expectation that you've built up about who they're going to be? That's Cornelius. He's an incredibly honorable man. But there's one problem. Cornelius is Greek. He's a Gentile, meaning he's not a Jew. He's not an Israelite. At this moment in time, he's, as Paul writes later in Ephesians 2.12, he's separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, stranger to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's pretty bleak. Cornelius, he's a complete outsider to the family of God. The gates of heaven for Cornelius are slammed shut. He's left out. But that's at the eighth hour of the day. If you look at the text, at the ninth hour, it's a whole different story. At the ninth hour, Cornelius sees a vision of one of God's angels calling his name. Cornelius. He hears it more clearly, more piercingly. This, This angel is staring into his soul. And Cornelius isn't like, hey, what's up? He's in terror, right? He, he somehow ekes out the word. What, what Lord? What, what is it, Lord? And this is the message God has for him. Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Send men to go get a man called Peter and bring him back here. So that's exactly what Cornelius does. Now, Peter... Good old Peter. We know Peter. We know he's nothing like Cornelius. Before meeting Jesus, he wasn't important like Cornelius was. He was a catcher of fish, not a commander of men. He wasn't really all that measured and self-controlled like Cornelius was, as far as we can tell at least. But most importantly, Peter wasn't a Gentile like Cornelius was. You see, Peter's an insider. He's an Israelite who, according to Romans 9, 4 through 5, possesses the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, the Christ. Compare that to Cornelius' standing, right? 
That's Peter. Cornelius is separated, alienated, stranger. These two are in very different places, socially and spiritually. But that's not exactly how Luke paints the picture. Luke, in verse 9, he brings us to Peter, and it's fascinating. He describes Peter and Cornelius not by how different they are, though they are very different. He describes them by their similarity, right? You find these two men both praying. They're both marked by the fear and worship of God. They're both addressed by God in visions. God's talking to both of them. You could, see, you could say God's in community with both of them. You'd expect to read about all about how they're different. But Luke wants us to see that these two men are stunningly similar. And as Peter's praying, something crazy happens, right? He's hungry because he's human. I mean, let's be honest, how many of you are also hungry right now and ready to fall into a trance? <laughs> uh, just kidding. And God shows him this vision with all these animals and reptiles and birds and a blanket. The problem is, Peter isn't allowed to eat any of them. It's kind of funny if you think about it. Imagine you're on some vegan diet, not of your own choice. And at the peak of your hunger, God shows you this massive plate of buffalo wings. Right? <laughs> right? That might get me. But Peter, he doesn't go for it. He doesn't bite. Remember, Peter's an Israelite. He possesses the law of God given by Moses on Mount Sinai. And in that law, there are very specific rules about what is acceptable to eat and what is not. Leviticus 11 in the Torah gave instruction for Israel on which animals are clean and which animals are unclean. In the law, they were instructed only to eat of the animals that God assigned as clean for them. This was meant to distinguish Israel from the other nations around them. Israel was meant to be different, to be holy, to be set apart. So as the voice in the dream calls out to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat, Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Peter thinks he knows the right answer. No way. I'm a faithful Jew. I follow the law. This same thing happens again, and we find some very important words. The voice in the dream says, What God has made clean, do not call common. And then it happens a third time, and the whole dream is over. And at this point, Peter still doesn't quite get what's going on. And I want us to pay attention here to Peter's resistance to the message and mission of Jesus. It's not that Peter doesn't intend to follow Jesus with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He, he absolutely does. There's one thing we can't fault Peter with. It's not a lack of trying to do his best. But he's still resistant to what God is telling him in this vision. You could argue that it's a vision, and visions are confusing. Maybe he doesn't know where it's coming from. I'd be confused too. But by this point in the book of Acts, Peter knows the voice of the Spirit, doesn't he? He's heard from and spoke words from the Spirit before, and he'll do so again in this very chapter. 
Peter's told specifically in this vision what God has made clean, do not call common, and it happens three times, which is likely uh, a literary tool referencing to some other three-time moments for Peter. Peter should have remembered the words of Jesus in Mark 7, 15 through 19. If you remember, Jesus had been critiqued really harshly by the Pharisees, as uh, was his habit, for the way the disciples were eating with improperly washed hands. And, And Jesus said, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared, All foods clean. Now, I don't say this to take some free swings at Peter and pretend that I or we are so much better. No, I say this because as this chapter unfolds, we are getting a real-time look at Peter's changing heart. See, Peter needs to get in line with Jesus, right? He needs to learn or relearn that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. It's already happened. That he needs to relearn that food does not make someone unclean but the status of their heart. In all hearts, both the Jews and Gentiles, both Peter's and Cornelius's, must be cleansed and are able to be cleansed by the work of Christ on the cross. That's what Peter is learning through this chapter. And, and yes, he should have known better, but I think if we're honest, we're actually a lot like Peter, aren't we? Wouldn't you agree that we tend to be a bit slow, a bit resistant to get in line with Jesus? We have to learn and relearn and relearn the things that he's taught us. As we continue the story, I just want you to consider that. How does God challenge the idols of Peter's heart as he shows him his better way? And then for us, how might God be doing that in our own hearts as well? So after both of their visions, Cornelius and Peter are finally in the same room, okay, face to face. And we might read that and and not skip a beat, but for the first century Jewish reader, they read that and they're like, whoa. Peter tells us why in verse 28. As he's in Cornelius' house, he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Not just that it is unlawful, how unlawful. It's really unlawful, is what Peter's saying. Not just Peter, but everyone there knew that Peter wasn't supposed to be there. It goes against every fiber of his being. But he also says, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. See that? But God has shown me. Look at the process of Peter's heart change. He still doesn't quite get it. He can't quite explain it, but God has shown me. He's not able to give a dissertation on the cleanliness of Cornelius because of Christ's work on the cross. No. He just knows that God has told him he must not, word for word, must not call Cornelius unclean. 
Don't you love that, the simplicity? God's told me. He's shown me. I don't quite get it all yet. But I've heard his voice. I want to listen. So Cornelius retells his dream to Peter and waits to hear the message from God that Peter has. You see that? Cornelius knows it's not Peter's message. The message from God. Give it to me. And here we are, the punchline, verses 34 and 35. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. I just want to stop here and say loud and clear, friends, you are the anyone. We are the anyone. Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now this can sound a bit legalistic, right? If I do a bunch of right things, then I'll be acceptable to him. It's not really what this means. What Peter's saying is that anyone who submits themselves to God by placing their faith in Christ is acceptable to him. Anyone who fears him, like we just heard about from Genesis. Jew, Gentile, or other, anyone who fears God is acceptable to him. That's great news for us, right? If we're in anyone. Through faith in Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection, we are accepted. There are many places in this world where we are not or we will not be accepted. As we mentioned earlier, there might be birthday parties, weddings, maybe positions in leadership at work, where we're left out. You may be left out as a Christian in your own home. But as Christians, we can look at those sad circumstances and smile because of who we are in Christ. Our most important relationship in life is our relationship with God. Where do you stand with him? Everything else in life is okay for good with God. Doesn't mean it's not sad, right? But it's okay. Do you believe that? That can be really hard to believe, right? Or it can be easy to say and hard to hard to believe in our hearts, but it is gloriously true. Everything else is okay. We're good with God. Let's look back at verse 34. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. What Peter's saying is, is pretty simple. Again, the mission and message of Jesus is for absolutely anyone who will place their hope in him. God used a dream about clean and unclean animals to teach Peter a lesson about clean and unclean human beings. This dream is a real-life lesson for Peter. On a ground level, what Peter is saying is that there are no ethnic boundaries to the cross of Christ. There are no ethnic requirements to be a full disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's great news, right? That's great news because there are churches gathering today worshiping in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different languages, different peoples, right? And Revelation 5.9 tells us that people of every tribe and language and people and nation were ransomed by the Lamb and one day will worship Him in, in glory. We get this because this nation word is a Greek word called ethne. 
Most scholars understand this to refer to, to people groups, not necessarily to nation states. So in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And I, I think this is a logical conclusion from what we know about the gospel, right? As we heard a few weeks ago, the law says do, the gospel says done. The gospel is something that is accomplished for us. We don't accomplish it for ourselves. There's no type of person we must be or even could be in order to earn God's acceptance. That includes being Jewish for Peter, being Greek for Cornelius, or whatever. No, the gospel says done. God shows no partiality. And as followers of Jesus, we ought to strive to be a people who show no partiality, ethnic or otherwise. But why? Why should we show no partiality? Why is this a good and right virtue for us to pursue? Is it because the world says so? Is it because it gets us farther in life? Is it because it will make us look better to other people? No, we ought to show no partiality because God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. Because God said to Peter in a dream that we must not call unclean what God has made clean. God said that in his vision to Peter. So do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to be godly? Show no partiality. And one of the most important areas in which we can practice showing no partiality, I'm convinced, is in our evangelism and how we present the gospel to lost people, people who don't know Jesus. We all, in our natural bent, are prone to partiality. If we're honest with ourselves, we all have certain types of people who we think are unlikely to believe in the mission and message of Jesus. That may be an ethnic group, like it was for Peter. I think often it may be a cultural or ideological group of people. It might be a personality type or just that one person. But God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Anyone who fears and believes in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, no matter where they come from, is acceptable in his sight. And while this may not feel like such a big idea or a new concept for us, I don't want us to miss that this is a massive moment in the life of a church. Remember that in the book of Acts, Luke is painting a picture of the increase of the church as the gospel goes from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Right? We're meant to see that the multiplication of the church is tied to the inclusion of the Gentiles. Now remember, that means the inclusion of us, right? The, the multiplication is tied to God's impartiality. You see, where the redeeming work of Jesus only meant to be applied to one nation, to the Jews, that would limit the increase in the spread of the message, right? You see that? Jesus did not say, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and get some of them in Judea and Samaria and then, you know, call it a day. That's hard enough. No, when the audience of the message is expanded to the people of every nation, the potential increase of the church multiplies exponentially. Do you see that pattern? 
right? If it was just here, but what if it's here? And an increase in the church leads to an increase in the worship of God, and an increase in the worship of God leads to an increase in God receiving glory from the people that he has made. That's the point. It's not about us. This is why Luke goes to such great lengths to tell us this long, long story in this moment of the book. He slows down to show us its importance. A multiplied audience of the gospel is going to lead to a multiplied adherence to the gospel. All for God's glory. This is a colossal moment in the life of the church, and it's directly tied to God's desire to receive glory through the redemption of a multitude of people. After proclaiming that the gospel message is in fact for Cornelius, someone of a different background, but someone who nonetheless fears God, Peter begins to proclaim that very gospel message. This is only because Peter has been changed at a heart level by God. He's been changed to see that Cornelius is no longer unclean. He's not unclean because of the status of his status as a Gentile, or what he eats, or because of what's in his house, but through the finished work of Christ on the cross. So here is the good news, my friends, preached to us by the Apostle Peter, starting in, in verse 36. He said, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And you know what happened? Look at verse 44. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The moment the gospels proclaim to these believing Gentiles, the Spirit descends on them. Think about the power and sufficiency of the gospel message with the Holy Spirit for conversion. You may think, they'll never believe. The Spirit does amazing things. While Peter was still speaking, the moment he says, that they can receive forgiveness of sins through his name, the Spirit descends. The gospel is enough for you. The gospel is enough for me. And for those of you who are here today, you're just checking things out. You're unsure about the claims of Christ. Maybe someone just brought you here. You're just along for the ride. 
This news about Jesus Christ is for you too. The reality of life is that without Christ, we are all unclean before an infinitely righteous and clean God. Every one of us. Our uncleanliness before God is our own doing because of our sin and is deserving of his perfect judgment. But the good news is that by placing our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we read in verse 43, that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name, we can become clean, not by anything of our own doing, but by the work of Christ on the cross. We can be clean from sin and enter his presence both now and forever. Finally, look at the response of Peter and his friends. Verse 45, they were, what? Amazed. They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Even them. Even us. Let's be amazed as well. And like Peter, let's learn to get with Jesus' program. It's a good one. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.